Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. In this, episode four, we'll talk about IKEA. Can you use IKEA in your van? The advantages of solar versus a split charge relay, or vice versa. We'll have a tale from the road about a chance encounter at Lowe's. We're going to review the dog bowl sink. I'll, I'll explain that, I promise. And we'll do some Q&A and some resource recommendations at the end. So, hey, welcome back. Thank you very much for listening. So IKEA, uh, I like IKEA. I know people think of it as a place where you get cheap furniture that breaks as soon as you try to move it, and that's true to some extent. But there's two things I like about IKEA. One is, when you're building your van and you don't know exactly what you want to do yet, IKEA is a great place to go, not necessarily to buy things, but to get ideas. Being a Scandinavian company, they focus on um, Scandinavian design, which tends to be very efficient, and that is great for van life. While traditional furniture in America tends not to be very well suited to vans, I mean, some of it can be, IKEA actually can be suited because of how it's designed. Now first, let's talk about some issues with IKEA. Most IKEA stuff, because it comes in flat pack, is made out of this really heavy, dense wood chip material that's called MDF, medium density fiberboard. It is problematic stuff. It's very brittle. It doesn't like to bend at all. Uh, it certainly doesn't like to get wet. And the fasteners that are used, which are often these screw and cam type fasteners uh, with the beloved Allen wrench that IKEA loves so much, they're often not a great thing for a moving object. So one of the problems with IKEA furniture is that when you move it, it tends to break. And if you're putting it in a van, of course that's a problem. But there are exceptions. IKEA has a kitchen department. And in that kitchen department, they have a number of fairly high-end cabinet solutions. And they're very customizable. They tend to be a little bit more than other IKEA stuff, but if you want a really high-quality build and... Like me, you can't measure and cut straight to save your life. IKEA isn't a bad solution. Their kitchen department has basically all different size boxes, and then you buy the doors to put on them. And then they also have counter surfaces that you can buy measured. I actually didn't do the kitchen cabinets because there is in the bookshelf department a line of cabinets called Eket. E-K-E-T. Or I've heard it pronounced Eket, too. I don't know how they pronounce it in Scandinavia. The nice thing about these um, is, for, first off, to describe them, they're basically just cubes. They're just cubes, and they have a couple of units that are not a cube. Like, they have these big drawer units, of which I have one. And they have taller, kind of, half-closet units. But the great thing for vans with this stuff, well, it's actually a couple of great things. One is that it comes in different depths. You can build the cabinets around a wheel well. From inside the van, if you looked, it looks like the cabinets are all lined up on the front, but in the back, they're actually different depths because you've got the wheel well there, and, and that gives you a lot of flexibility. The other nice thing about Eket is that it's not MDF. It's actually made out of this honeycomb material that's a bit lighter, and the connectors are done differently. Now, I'm not going to say these things are the most sturdy things in the world. I would recommend that anything you buy from Ikea, you reinforce because the movements of the van will affect this stuff. Also, the door closures are magnetic, and I have found that they're not that strong. So let's say you have a can inside a cabinet. If that can slides over and bumps against the door, it's going to open it and dump all your stuff out. But don't dismiss Ikea just because you think of it as cheap crap. There are van solutions in Ikea. A lot of people have built their entire vans out of Ikea. 
Also, they're a great source for bed slats. If you're going to build a bed, one of those expanding beds where the slats slide out between each other, or just a static bed but you need the base, IKEA sells these great slat bases that can be cut and customized any way you want. They also sell pretty high-quality, fairly inexpensive foam mattresses that you can cut to any size and shape you want. And if you don't know this already, the best way to cut a foam mattress is with an electric turkey carving knife. Those do a really good job, and you can probably find them very cheap at a thrift store because they're the kind of thing that people tend to throw out. Uh, other things to think about IKEA are cookware. They have very inexpensive pots and pans. They have all kinds of little containers that could be useful, little hooks and things like that. So don't discard the idea of IKEA outright. Go check it out. Kate. Go get some Swedish meatballs. Walk around the store. Just look for ideas. Um, look at rugs. Look at, at drapes. They've probably got something that you could use in your van. Also, later in the episode I'll talk about this, uh, my dog bowl comes from Ikea. Okay, tech talk. So you have a leisure battery, and you want to charge it, which is a great idea. How are you going to charge it? Well, you could get a battery charger and plug it in and charge it. That would work, but that isn't terribly convenient if you're in a van. You typically don't have a place to plug it in. So what else can you do? Well, the, an obvious solution that a lot of people do is solar. You put solar panels on the roof. They provide power during the daytime. That power goes through a controller of some sort. That controller supplies the proper amount of voltage to your batteries and charges your batteries. It works. I All summer long, that's how I charge my batteries. But now that winter's here and solar panels are going to be less effective because the sun goes down earlier, there's simply less sun, I installed a split charge relay. What this thing does is it connects your alternator to your rear batteries, your leisure batteries, allowing your alternator to charge the batteries in the back. It's kind of an obvious solution. This is what alternators do. They're little generators under your hood that charge batteries. But the problem is, is that you want to isolate your starter battery from your leisure battery because you don't want to drain your starter battery. My personal opinion on starter batteries is that they shouldn't be used for anything other than starting. I treat them as sacred. And this device preserves that. The way it works is, when the engine is running and the alternator is producing high voltage, which is usually up to 14.4, maybe 14.5 volts, this device, which is a relay, which is another name for a switch, opens the circuit and lets the power flow to the rear batteries. But then when you turn the car off and the alternator stops producing power, it will sever that connection so that the leisure battery can't drain anything from the starter battery. That's a little bit more complicated than that. The device will detect voltage, and you actually might be able to turn the van off and have the voltage of the starter battery be high enough that it will say, all right, you can have just a little bit of that power. But once the voltage goes below 12.8 volts, which is usually plenty to start the van with, it'll sever the connection, and your leisure batteries will no longer be able to dry, draw power from the starter battery. So you may be thinking... Well, so what the heck is the solar for? If I can do this, why do I want solar? Well, there's a couple reasons. Um, solar, obviously, always is working. You don't have to be driving somewhere. So if you're going to go stay somewhere for like three or four days and you're not running the van, you're going to need another way to do power, and solar will do that for you. 
Solar also can keep your batteries topped up when you're not using the van at all. Let's say you're, you know, you, you actually have a house and you're only using your van on weekends. Well, solar will keep everything charged up while you're in your house doing your thing. Also, depending on how you wire it, your solar can still do things like charge your, uh, power your refrigerator while you're driving so you're not actually drawing from the alternator. The wiring gets a little bit tricky for some of this stuff, and I'm not going to get into it in this podcast. But I would say that if you're building a van and you're going to drive a lot, you know you're going to be moving every day, I would start by putting in a split charge relay first rather than solar. I think it's going to be more useful for you. No matter what happens with a split charge relay, you can always charge your rear batteries simply by starting the van. So even in the middle of the night, if you needed to charge the batteries for some reason, you could start the van and you'd be good. Solar is more expensive, requires a lot more installation, uh, and can reduce your gas mileage because if you put rigid panels on the roof, they're going to slow airflow down a little bit. So think about how you're going to use the van before you decide to use solar. Uh, I did it backwards, honestly. I should have put the split charge relay in first and then the solar. I'm very happy to have both. I think if you have the option, you want to have both. But look at the split charge relays. Uh, Oh, one caveat on the split charge relays. The instructions they come with do not mention fuses. If you install them the way they tell you, you've created a very dangerous situation. But it's easy to mitigate, so don't be too freaked out. You're basically going to be running a wire from your starter battery to your leisure battery. That wire, if it if anything happens to it, like it frays and touches the frame of your vehicle, you have high, high potential for a fire there. And so the way to stop that risk is to put a fuse on either end. Now, you're dealing with a lot of lot of amps here, so you need a big fuse. There's a there's a type of fuse called an ANL fuse. It doesn't look like your normal car fuses, it's much bigger, and you, you can find them at AutoZone or on Amazon or anything like that. Put one of those near each battery in that line. Uh, it's a great safety thing. My van has a 150 amp alternator. A lot of vans have smaller ones than that. Some have bigger ones, especially if you have a, an ambulance. Those, those have huge alternators. Make sure that that fuse is close to the rating of your alternator, maybe a little bit more. Not less, because then it'll blow all the time. And not, like, double, because then it won't blow when you need it to. So, very important safety tip there. Anyway, go forth and be powered. Tales from the road. Hey, just a little quick story about one of those fun moments when you have a van. Uh, I pulled into a Lowe's, and I was, I forget what I was buying. Something for the van, no doubt. Uh, if you have a van, you're going to be visiting Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards, whatever kind of hardware store you have near you quite a bit. And I see there's a, a van just like mine. There is a, a Nissan NV200, white, no windows on the sides, solar panels on the roof, and I'm like, hey, it's another van person. So I pull up next to him, and uh, we just have a great conversation about how we did things in the van, and we compared our builds, and he did some stuff that I really liked with um, gauges, and I really like his bed setup. He liked the amount of storage I had in my van, because I think of all the NV200 builds I've seen, I have managed to get the most storage in there. Maybe. Uh, Depends on how you look at it. It was just one of those nice encounters. He was just this young guy who's going to live in his van. He's going to head out west. I mean, it's kind of like the American dream in that regard. And that's one of the things about having a van is it seems like most people in the van community 
are curious and interested in helping out other people with vans. And this isn't the first time I've run into someone, obviously. Every time I go out in my van, I run into another van life person. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's nice to make these little connections and just to say, hey, we've got something in common. But I try to respect people's privacy. I, I, I'm not going to go knock on someone's window or whatever. I, I will wait for the moment and say, hey, like your build there, you know, something like that. And then if they engage in conversation, great, we'll have a conversation. If not, that's fine. We'll just move along. You want to respect someone's privacy. So that's one of the nice things. If you're going to do this and build a van, if you want to see other people who have done the same thing, it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. And if you want to keep your privacy, you know, just be honest and say, nope, yep, nope, thanks. You know, we're not going to have that conversation. Okay, let's talk about the dog bowl. So, sinks. What do you use for a sink? Um, a lot of people will just use a bucket and have no plumbing. You know, they just have a bucket and then the wastewater goes in the bucket and they dump the bucket out. Simplest, easiest way to do this. I decided I wanted to be a little fancier, uh, so I put in a plumbing system, which is really no more than a faucet and then a drain that goes into a gray water tank. Okay. Pretty simple stuff, not really complicated, but I needed a sink. Now, I'd seen a lot of people had used mixing bowls as sinks, and uh, I thought, hmm, that's interesting, but I was having a hard time finding one that had a lip. So if you're going to drill a hole in a counter and you're a klutz like me, that hole is not going to be very round. The measurements are going to be off, and you, me, I, owning this, wanted something with a big lip so it would cover my lack of carpentry expertise. And I had a hard time finding something. And then at Ikea, for four bucks, they had this dog bowl made out of this heavy-duty stainless steel that was about the size I was looking for, and it was perfect. I had a really hard time drilling a hole in it for the drain. And know this, if you use any of the mixing bowl or dog bowl solutions for the drains, when you put the drain in, it's not going to be like your sink at home. It's going to sit up a little bit. Uh, home sinks have a, a recessed area where the drain goes in. So all the water goes to that recessed area and then down the drain. Uh, you're not going to find that in a bowl or a dog bowl or anything like that. So you're going to just know you're going to have the drain's going to be a little tiny bit higher and some water is going to stay. It's not a big deal. But uh, I installed it and it works fine. Now, would I do it again? Well, here's what I've learned after using this dog bowl driving for 25,000 miles. It's too darn small, and, and what I'm measuring there by smallness isn't its depth, it's plenty deep, it's its width. I think it's a 12-inch diameter dog bowl, and I can't fit a pot in there, I, it's just too small. So eventually I'm going to replace it with something square or rectangular, and I'm looking at different kinds of pans I could use. Uh, a bar sink is basically what I should get, I'm just being cheap because they're expensive. So... Word to the wise. Uh, in fact, I invite you to do this. If you're thinking about doing a sink and you are interested in the bowl idea because it's very inexpensive and it works, try doing dishes in it. Uh, just in, in a kitchen somewhere, fill up that bowl with soapy water and see if you can do dishes in it. If you can, great, you're all set. Another thing to think about is uh, it's quite possible to wash your hair in a sink, but if you do, that sink has to be big enough to catch the dripping water off your head. Uh, and another way to deal with that is to have a bucket, which is where we started with this conversation. Uh, I also have a collapsible bucket that I can use 
to catch water like that. And then I can just dump it into the sink. So anyway, there's some thoughts on the dog bowl sink. Uh, I think it can work, but know that it has limitations. All right, let's talk about a, an interesting place to visit that I visited this summer, and that is Bangor, Maine. Now, Bangor is, is, well, Maine's a big place. It's not that far up, but it's farther than most people go when they visit Maine. Most people stay in the southeast coast near New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Uh, hey, go a little further, because Bangor's pretty cool, and you get a sense of uh, real Maine. You get a little bit out of the touristy Maine, and you get to get into, like, the Stephen King kind of Maine. In fact... If you're a Stephen King fan, you almost have to go to Bangor because you can visit his house, which is uh, not, you can't go in his house, at least not yet, uh, but you can drive by it. It's just on one of the streets and it's a beautiful house with all kinds of interesting stuff. It's one of the most photographed houses in the U.S. Um, and you can visit some of the sites that is, he's written about. Uh, for example, in the book It, uh, he talks about this standpipe, which is a big part of the story. And a lot of people don't know what a standpipe is. Uh, and uh, that's basically, it's a water tower. It's a, it's a big water tower that is designed to keep the water system, the public water system, under pressure. But the ones in Maine are different. So there's this very, uh, you'll, you'll see when you go to Bangor, you ask about the water tower. It's on a hill and it's this big amazing structure it looks like a giant barn and uh, it's it looks like a big building but inside it's this creepy staircase that goes down around this enormous water tank and that that was the inspiration for it i'll post a picture of my van in front of it uh, in the show notes but that's that's two good reasons to go to bangor but even if you don't like stephen king it's a really interesting new england town it's a blue collar town that has a little bit of touristy stuff, but you can go there and have some authentic food the way New Englanders eat it, not designed for tourists. And in the summer, it's really just super beautiful up there. So, hey, look, it's summer. You're in a van. You're trying to get out of the heat. Go ahead and give Bangor a try. Uh, be a little careful when you're parking because the, uh, the heavily traveled touristy areas are heavily patrolled. But if you use the apps, um, you can find parking. I found parking at, where did I park up there? I found parking at a Cabela's that was up there that worked well. And I also parked at the trailhead of the Appalachian Trail. And um, what I would recommend you do is you treat Bangor as kind of your starting place and then explore out from there. I mean, there's, there's lots of interesting stuff to see. Uh, I found a crashed B-52 in the woods, for example. That was an interesting place to visit. Uh, that was up closer to Mount Katahdin. So, consider that a visit to Bangor, Maine. Okay, I'm going to recommend a resource for you. This is a resource not so much for how to build vans, but just... I don't know. I'm just going to tell you about it, and you can decide what you like. There is a YouTube channel that's hugely popular called Combi Life. Now that's K-O-M-B-I, Life. Um, and the reason it's called that is because this guy is traveling in a Volkswagen van, uh, which are called combis in some parts of the world, not here in the U.S. 
And um, I won't tell you too much about his journey, but he spent the last 10 years of his life living out of either a backpack or the van. And he did an epic, epic journey from the very southernmost point of South America to the very northernmost point of Alaska in this van. Uh, the earlier videos are a bit rough. You could tell he's still trying to figure it out, and there's people involved with them that don't last very long. Go ahead and wade through them, or just jump into episodes, uh, season two or three. It's such a compelling story. The dedication this guy has, his name is, is Ben Jamin. I don't know if that's his real name or not. But he's from the island of Jersey, and he's just one of the most adventurous and fearless people I've ever encountered on the internet. So check it out. If, you, if, you, <laughs> if you're feeling like this is overwhelming and you'll never be able to do it, check out Combi Life on YouTube. Link in the show notes. Heck, if this guy can do it, I don't know why anyone can't. Okay, some questions and answers. My friend Shauna, who uh, we, we are both volunteers with a great nonprofit organization, uh, asked me this question. I'm curious about how often, if ever, one might find themselves in a place where they can't legally sleep in the van. And how do you handle that? Well, that's a very good question. So, I, like I've said a few times, uh, my van is fairly stealth. So, theoretically, I can park it anywhere that it's legal to park, and no one's going to know any better. But, hey, van life is getting popular. In some places, it's getting to be a problem, and there are restrictions. So, here's what I do to handle that, because I don't want the knock on the door in the middle of the night. It has never happened to me so far, but maybe I've just been lucky. So I have all the apps. There's iOverlander, there's freecampsites.net, there's Allstays. Uh, there's a ton of these apps that tell you about different places to camp. You have to be careful because it's crowdsourced, and some people will just park somewhere and not have a problem and say, this place is great, and not realize they had parked on private property or that there were restrictions of some sort. So you have to kind of cross-reference and be careful. Always, always read the comments. My number one favorite place to park is at a free campsite. These are rare, but they do exist, and my favorite one is in Aurora, Nebraska. If you're ever traveling east to west or west to east on the interstates, it's worth going a little bit out of your way to go to Aurora, Nebraska, because they have a free campsite downtown with, it's, they've got power, they've got a dump station, they've got a flush toilet uh, bathroom you can use, there's fresh water. It's just amazing, and it's just there as a thank you for visiting their town, which is actually a pretty cool town. There's some great museums near there and an excellent toy store downtown. So that's my number one choice. But like I said, those are pretty rare. After that, I tend to look for rest areas, uh, on, especially interstate rest areas. The downside of an interstate rest area is that it tends to be noisy. There's always cars going by. But I have found that I'm okay with that. As long as I know what the noise is, it's not going to bother me too much. The big upside of this is that you've got a support system right there. You've got a, a bathroom you can use. Um, there is some some level of security. At least you have um, a way that you can tell people where you are if anything has a problem, if, uh, if you run into any kind of problem. Often they will have fresh water. Sometimes they have dump stations. However, state laws vary on whether you can stay there or not. For example, Georgia 
George's rest areas say, quite simply, no overnight parking. I don't know why. I, I think it's silly to ask drivers to keep driving even if they're tired. So, um, yeah, you have to check. Um, a lot of places it's fine. Wisconsin has a 24-hour parking rule. Even though their signs, the signs on their rest areas say no camping, they also have a 24-hour parking rule. So those seem to be in conflict, except I think they're actually referring to tent camping. And <laughs> here's the thing. I'm not going to ask. I have never had a problem in a rest area, even one that says no overnight parking. I don't like to stay in those places. I'm clearly breaking the rules. But the bottom line is, nobody seems to care. And if anyone does knock on my door at night, I have a plan. And that plan is, I am going to move. No conversation, no arguments. I'm simply going to move. So, that said, if I'm somewhere where rest areas aren't convenient, I will look for businesses that allow you to park there. Those tend to be Walmarts, which are great. A 24-hour Walmart is fine, although I find that the parking lot noise is, is troublesome sometimes, especially on weekends. Cracker Barrel is great. However, they're not open at night, so you can find a quiet place to park there, but you have two problems. They're not open, so it's not like you can use the bathrooms or get anything from the shop, but also they tend to get early morning deliveries. So, you know, maybe the egg truck rolls in at 4 a.m. or whatever, so you have that to deal with. And then there's Cabela's and Camping World that sometimes will let you park there. And sometimes they, they're nice. Uh, the Camping World in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, will actually let you plug into their light poles. So they have this giant parking lot, and you can park next to a, a light pole and plug in and get power. And the, let's see, where was I just? And the Cabela's in Louisville, Kentucky, has actual campsites that are free in their parking lot. They had actually five campsites. So look at the apps, check these things out. But to answer Shauna's question, um, I, it, it's, a, it's a, actually a little bit of a philosophy thing. I'm in a vehicle. Can I park that vehicle there? Is it legal to park a vehicle where I'm parking it? And then the second question is, is it legal to stay in that vehicle while it's parked? That answer varies drastically. We have more and more communities saying now that it's illegal to sleep in your vehicle. So, first off, they have to tell that you're in the vehicle. I've heard many, many stories of people getting the knock in the night and simply ignoring it. Just stay in the back. What are they going to do? Well, there's one risky thing, is that they could tow you, and that's the very worst situation. Uh, the other thing is that, at some level... I am in a ask-forgiveness-rather-than-permission mentality on this, and I know that's controversial. Here's an example. Uh, let's say there's a Walmart, and I have not gotten permission from the store manager to park there. There's no signs that say there's no parking overnight, but I don't actually have explicit permission. Should I park there? My answer is, sure, go ahead, and here's why. If I go in the store and ask for permission, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to say no, and then I absolutely have to leave, or they're going to say yes, and then I've done something that I don't want to do, which is I have shifted responsibility for my parking there onto someone else. Now, if you go into the store at 10 p.m. at night, the manager you're talking to is probably not the main manager. And they might just want to be nice to you and say, yeah, okay, it's fine, you can park there. 
But that doesn't mean they're going to tell security. That doesn't mean they're going to tell the morning shift. And any of those people, if they had, know that there's a policy against parking, could have a problem with that. So they come up to you and they say, hey, you can't park here. And then you will say, oh, but the manager said I could. And suddenly that nice person who gave you permission to park here is in trouble. That might be a rare situation, but I'd rather not shift that responsibility to anyone else. So my approach is I am, number one, not going to be a nuisance. I'm going to park out of the way. I am not ever going to leave anything in that parking lot. It's, I'm not going to do anything to create a nuisance at all. Very important. And if anyone asks me to leave, I'm going to leave. That, that's how I handle it. So everyone's got their own comfort levels. Some people can't even deal with the thought of this uh, stealth camping or boondocking or dirt bagging, and there's all kinds of different words for this, and they will get a campsite every night. I built this van specifically not to have to get a campsite every night. So your experiences may vary, but those are mine, and... Um, if it changes, I'll let you know. Thanks very much for listening to this episode four. I am Jeff Wagg from the College of Curiosity. All the music in this episode was by Simon Wagg, a.k.a. Sir Mooge. And I will talk to you soon. <laughs>